We're continuing our journey, uh, the Lenten journey to the cross and the empty tomb. We're walking this journey to Easter together, and we're talking about the Jesus way. Say the Jesus way. Amen. Uh, so I welcome you today. If you're with us on live stream, thanks for tuning in. If you have your device and would like to follow along in the live stream app, in the Version app, you can find the notes there. If you search under live events for Forest Hill, you'll find us there. Amen. So welcome today. We're talking about the Jesus way. And we began last week by talking about the way of repentance. Say repentance. If you're on the wrong road, the first step is recognizing it and turning around and making your way back to the right path. Amen? That's the first step. And that is called in the Bible, repentance. Repentance isn't a bad word. It's a good word. It means we get the chance to correct our course, to correct our path, and to get on the right road. Repentance is the good news that God allows U-turns. Amen? So if you're going the wrong way today, just spin it around right where you are. God will allow you to make a U-turn and turn around and go the right way. You don't have to make a big deal about it. Repentance is just turn around and go the other direction today. That's God's word for us, to repent, to turn around. This morning, we're going to be looking at another passage, a very famous passage. It is the most, probably the most important message ever preached from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. It is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and it's the first 12 verses. It's called the Beatitudes. And if you know any words of Jesus, I would expect you know these words of Jesus. If you were like me, you grew up, they were probably somewhere in your home. My grandmother had two things on a plate that she had on the wall. On one side of the kitchen were the Ten Commandments, and on the other side of the kitchen were the Beatitudes, the beautiful attitudes of Jesus, short for the Beatitudes. Warren Wiersbe says they're the attitudes that ought to be in every Christian. Amen? We ought to be these things. And Jesus gives them to us in this passage. Amen? The Gospels were written, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each was written for a different audience. Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Mark was written for the Romans. Luke was written to a Gentile audience. John was written to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles who were in the church in Asia Minor. But Matthew was written for a Jewish audience. And so there are lots of things in the book of Matthew that really would grab the attention of a Jewish hearer. And some of us may not catch them on the first read through. But in the, in the Bible, we find out real quickly that Israel was God's servant. Say God's servant. And that servant failed in their assignment. They were to be God's light to all the nations, but they didn't do that. They sort of thought that God chose them just because he loved them and hated everybody else. And that wasn't the case. God loved them and he picked them so that they would be a light to everyone else and that all the nations would come to know and serve the Lord. But they hid their light and they thought that God just loved them and they were special and God didn't want it to do anything with anyone else. And so they failed in that assignment. They were not loyal to God. Number one, they didn't keep his commandments and so their moral life was not a light. They began to look just like the other nations around them. They began to be to walk in darkness and their light did not shine and so they failed in that way and they also failed to draw the others to God through their missionary effort and so God had to start again and he had to find a faithful Israelite 
who would turn it around. And that faithful Israelite was his son, the Lord Jesus. And so in the book of Isaiah, there is a servant of the Lord who will set right everything that went wrong. And that servant is Jesus Christ. And he comes on the scene. And we find him here at the beginning of the book of Matthew. During his time on earth, the Gentiles from the east, the wise men, and Pilate, a Gentile from the west, both come and call him the king of the Jews. So the Gentile world acknowledges that. Jesus comes out of the wilderness in the Jordan. He calls 12 disciples and he goes up on a mountain. Now, if you know your Old Testament, that ought to remind you of a story where God brings his people across the sea into the wilderness, goes up on top of a mountain, gives them his law, and feeds them with bread. Well, Jesus does that. He goes across the sea into the wilderness, up on a mountain. He feeds them with bread, and he gives them his law. Only instead of the Ten Commandments, we get the eight Beatitudes in this, in this passage here. He gives us the law of the kingdom of God. I love it. It's a beautiful thing. In the Old Testament, you've got the five books of Moses. Matthew gives us the five sermons of Jesus. This is God's law. This is the, the, the law of God's kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom that we're called to live in. Jesus predicts that Jerusalem will be devastated. The temple will be destroyed. And when he dies, the veil in the temple that separated us from God is torn in half. That era is over. When Jesus rises from the dead, he declares that the kingdom of Israel has given way to the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish synagogue has been replaced by the Christian church. And God's presence is not found resting over a box in the temple in Jerusalem. God's presence is now found being poured out on the heads of God's people on the day of Pentecost in an upper room. And God's glory is not in that temple it's in this temple. It's in the people of God. He doesn't live in a box. He lives in bodies. He lives in you and me. His spirit has come and the glory of God now rests on the church of Jesus. Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God bless the reading of his word and his people said amen. I love this passage because I believe it gives us the way of the kingdom. Many people have said you know Paul talks about how to be saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. The Bible gives us that outline. Somebody said, well, Jesus never really gave us a step-by-step -step plan of salvation. I disagree. I think this is it. 
I believe the Beatitudes, I believe Matthew 5 is the way of the kingdom, but it's also the way into the kingdom. How do we come into God's kingdom? I believe Jesus gives us the path right here in this passage. I believe there these eight Beatitudes, four of them show us the way into the kingdom, and four of them show us how we live how we once we get into the kingdom. How do you become a member of God's family? And then how do you behave once you're in? I believe that's what Matthew 5 is all about. It's about becoming and it's about behaving. How do we become a citizen of God's kingdom? And how do we behave once we are in the family of God? Once we're part of God's great kingdom? I want you to look at it with me. The first four give us the way into the kingdom. Say into. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Well, number one, Jesus says, you must be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's in the kingdom? The poor in spirit. He says so. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. Now, I don't believe that this means financially poor, first of all. Amen? He doesn't just say that. It's not just blessed are the poor. If you've ever been poor, you know that it's not a happy thing to just be poor. If that's all we can say about you, amen? Amen. Someone said the best way to help the poor is not become one, amen? Yeah. Try not to do that if you can help it. <laughs> amen. Poor in spirit is a very different category than poor financially. Although if you understand one, you can understand the other. What does it mean? You lack you have poverty. You, you don't have the resources that you need to get you through. Well, apply that to your life spiritually and you'll understand what poor in spirit means. It means we acknowledge the fact that we are spiritually bankrupt before God. We don't have anything to commend us to God. We are lacking anything that would cause us to stand before God with any merit at all. Many people today are failing to acknowledge that. We live in a world where we don't want to admit that we don't have it all together, right? Most of us very carefully guard our reputation. It amazes me. Whenever I would teach an older Sunday school class, if you were to ask them about something, uh, ask them about a passage, younger people would often say, man, I'm struggling with that. You know, I really don't do that well. And they'd be honest about it. But most of the time, if you ask an older audience, well, what about this passage? They won't talk about their lives. They won't talk about how they're doing. They'll talk about how you ought to do. Well, you ought to do this. Well, the Bible says you should do this. I'm not asking what we should do. I'm asking what are we doing? Amen. Oh, that's a different question. Yes, it is. We often are very hesitant to acknowledge our poverty of spirit, aren't we? We get embarrassed by that. Uh, uh, my generation, they guard their image in a different way. They put their best five minutes on Facebook and Instagram every week. Amen. And if you were to look at the pictures they post, you would think that everything is wonderful. And some of us get depressed because we compare our real life to their best five minutes, right? There's a filter on that photo. They don't even look like that. You hear me? That's not even them. That's them plus technology. Yeah. <laughs> we protect our image, don't we? 
We really do. We protect our image. But the Bible says the first step into the kingdom of God is to be honest enough to own your spiritual bankruptcy. To say before God, I don't have what I need to get me into the kingdom. I'm not righteous. I, I don't have it all together. I'm morally bankrupt. Too many people think that even though they're not perfect, they're good enough to pass muster on the day of inspection and make it into the kingdom of God. Others believe as long as their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, they're going to make it. And so they try to tip the scale. And if they've done something really bad, they try to do something really good to offset it. I've got news for you. God doesn't measure that way. No judge measures that way. If you were to break the law today, if you were to get pulled over out here for speeding or running through the red light on Moffat and Howes Ferry, and he pulled you over and said, sir, you ran the red light. I'm going to give you a ticket. You wouldn't be able to smile back and say, well, I may have run this red light, but I didn't run the last two. It doesn't matter if you didn't run the last two. You can't run any of them. <laughs> right? That's the law. You have to keep and obey the law. It would be a bad judge if he didn't enforce the law. Well, God would be a bad God if he didn't enforce his moral law. And what that means is God's not going to just let it slide. He's not going to just allow my sin to go unaddressed or undealt, not dealt with. He's not going to do it. This is a lie. God is absolutely holy. He's completely just. And he will not allow even one sin to go undealt with. If he did, he wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be righteous. His word says that if we keep the whole law and break one commandment, if we fail at one point, we're still a lawbreaker. Amen. And the wages of our sin is death, being separated from God eternally. And the Bible calls that situation hell. Heaven is if we're with God. Hell is if we're separated from him from all eternity. And the Bible describes those two realities in great detail. God's commands are not a ladder, however, that we can climb to get to heaven. If you use God's law as a ladder, it will condemn you. You can't climb the ladder of commandments to get to heaven. Why? Because your legs aren't long enough. There's too much gap between the rungs. You can't reach it. All of us fail at some point or the other. If we're honest, we fail at many points, don't we? We have failed to keep God's law perfectly, and we do. We, we fail at that. Well, how are we ever going to be made right with God? Well, the first step is stop covering it up. Stop lying about it. Stop pretending that it isn't so. Own it. Come clean about it. Acknowledge it. Have poverty of spirit. Be poor in spirit. Be humble enough to admit and confess your sins. Some people come. God's word is not a ladder. It's, the commandments are not a ladder we climb to get to heaven. The commandments are a mirror that show us the dirt on our face and the places that we need to change. People come to church and they say, I read the Bible or I hear the sermon and I feel guilty. Good, the medicine's working. It's not that we're trying to shame one another, but it is the reality that we're holding the mirror of God's word up in front of our faces so we can see the reality of how we don't measure up and where we need to change and grow. But we need God's grace to forgive us of our sins. The only people who can be saved are the people who admit they need a savior. When Jesus said he leaves the 99 righteous to go after the one, I believe we misunderstand that. Unless the 99 were saved by grace, there were not 99 righteous. They're all lost. It's only one of us recognize it. 
When Jesus said, those that are whole don't need a doctor but the sick, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. He wasn't saying that there were some righteous people who didn't need saving. What he was saying is there's only two categories of sick people in the world. Those who know they're sick and those who pretend like they're not. The question is not if you're sick or well. The question is not if you're righteous or unrighteous. The question is, are you, are you unrighteous and admitting it or are you in denial about your unrighteousness apart from Jesus? Are you lost and know it? Or are you lost and still pretending that you're not? Like that man who drives around the same parking lot. Oh, he drives around the same landmark five times. Oh, no, it's around here somewhere. I, I, it's right over there. I'll get there in just a minute. Yeah. You're lost and you won't admit it. Be poor in spirit. Just own it. Just come clean about it. Admit to God that you don't have what you need. God's commands are, uh, are a mirror that show us how we fall short. He who covers his sin will not prosper, Proverbs 28 says. But whoever confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. We're either like the Pharisee who hides his own sin under a cloak of good deeds, or we are like the publican who falls before the Lord and beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one have you been? We must be one or the other. We have to be poor in spirit. Say poor in spirit. Number two, we have to mourn over our sins. Say mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, Jesus is not saying blessed are the depressed, okay? He's not just talking about people who go around weeping all the time. They're blessed because they're unhappy. No, that would be a contradiction in terms. Unhappiness is not a blessing, amen? Lack of joy is not a blessing. Tie number one and two together and you'll get the sense of it. We mourn over our sin. Number one, we're poor in spirit. We acknowledge the fact that we don't know the Lord. We aren't right with God. We don't have what we need. Number two, we mourn over that. We own our sin, we admit it, and then we say, Lord, I am heartbroken over the fact that I'm not right with you. I acknowledge my sin and my transgression is ever before me. We, people, we say no one's perfect, everyone's human. That may be true, but that doesn't mean it's okay. <laughs> we have to deal with that reality. The Bible says in Psalm 51, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you may, may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's owning it and, and mourning over it. Notice he doesn't just admit it, he's grieved by it. His heart is broken over it. His emotions are stirred up. We talked about this last week, didn't we? We called it remorse. Part of repentance is remorse. It's not only acknowledging that I did wrong, it's being sorry that we did wrong. It's feeling remorse and sadness over our sin. Some people admit their sins, but they treat it like it's no big deal. Some of us are like the little boy. He was standing up on his daddy's truck seat and his daddy said, sit down. And he wouldn't sit down. He said, I told you to sit down. And he wouldn't. So his daddy grabbed him and forced him down and buckled the seatbelt. And the little boy looked back and said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> Some of us are like that little boy. Our attitude hasn't changed. We still aren't sorry. I want to tell you, the Bible says, blessed are those that mourn over their sin. When we realize that we've sinned against God and we've broken God's commandment, our response is, we're broken over it. We have remorse over our sin. We mourn over sin. 
You haven't sinned against the law. You've sinned against the God who loves you and made you and wants the best for you. You've rejected him as being the master of your life. You've spit in the face of your father who's provided everything lovingly for you. You have rejected the Lord of your life who died to give you his own grace. Your sin and my sin nailed Jesus to the cross. That ought to do something to us emotionally. We have to be convicted, not over the fact of our sin, but the filth of our sin, and feel remorse over it. Conversion is when I see the magnitude, I feel the weight, I grieve my actions, I have godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. And then number three, blessed are the meek. Say the meek. Didn't say the weak, he said the meek. You said it quite meekly. Thank you for that. Blessed are the meek, the humble, those who are low in, lowly in spirit. Blessed are those. Once we've mourned our sins and acknowledged our bankruptcy before God, we have to be humble enough to receive the free gift of God's grace. We have to be willing to receive that as a gift. The ground is level at Calvary. Anybody can come and put their feet under the table of grace. But nobody gets to choose who they sit beside at the table. That's the good news of the gospel. The Bible says, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, God will allow, he will save anybody. He'll save me, he'll save you. But when we come to the table of grace, we have to be willing to stand there and sit there along with everybody else at the table of grace. He receives us. He receives us equally. And we've all got a place at the Lord's table. That's the truth. Are you willing to sit there? We have to be willing to stand in the same bread line with every other beggar and receive the handout of God's grace. We must see our sins as being just as wicked and blameworthy as everybody else's. Being a Christian is not turning over a new leaf. It's not getting a second chance to show God that we can do better. It's not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. No, it's falling helplessly before the cross of Jesus and receiving the handout of God's mercy and grace. It is standing in the bread line with every other beggar. It's seeing our sins as just as evil as those of others. It is realizing God looks on my hatred as murder, my lust as adultery, and he calls me to account for it. I have to be humble enough to receive the grace of God. We have to come to the place where we realize we will never be able to earn our keep, we'll never be able to prove our merit, we'll never be able to balance the scales of right and wrong before God. We're just going to have to receive the fact that he loves us and his grace is enough and his cross paid the price for our sin. And we're going to have to receive that as a gift. There are no self-made men in the presence of God. There is no one who gets to brag or boast before the throne of God of anything that they've done. We don't get to brag or boast about our good works. We don't get to boast about how much we've given because Jesus gave more. We don't, have, we don't get to boast about how much we've served because Jesus served in a far greater way. What do we have that we did not receive? Whenever we make it home, we will not be standing there boasting of our good works. Everyone who makes it home to heaven boasts only about one thing. We boast in the cross. We glory in Calvary. We celebrate. We, 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 we are, are filled with admiration over one fact, that God loved us and sent his son to die and rise again for us. 
That's our boast. That's our claim. That's our glory. That is the thing we brag about, that God set his love on us and that God sent his son for us and that Jesus died and rose so that we could be free from sin and have a new life. That's the gospel. And you have to be humble enough to receive that or God won't receive you. Wow. Number four, we have to hunger and thirst. Say hunger and thirst. We must hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. They'll be satisfied. Righteousness means being in right standing with God, having a right relationship with God. And we have to desire that strongly. We have to be hungry for that. We have to be thirsty for that. We have to have a deep burning desire to be made right with God. Is that true of you? More than anything else, do you want to be right with God? Do you want God to be pleased with your life? Do you want him to look at you one day and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Do you want peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want peace with the Lord? Do you want to be the kind of person who can look up to heaven and say, I know that God has accepted me by grace through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus. It is about falling helplessly before the cross and desiring strongly to be made right with God. We must not only confess our sins and mourn over them, we must come to despise our old ways and turn from them. We come to hate our sins strongly. We desire to forsake them and live a life that pleases God. The Bible word for this is repent. We repent. We turn from our sin. We change our mind. We change our hearts about sin. Kingdom citizens, people in the kingdom of God, love King Jesus. They desire to honor and please him. They don't thumb their nose at his laws or run their own little kingdoms. Is this the way you came into the kingdom? I hope it is. It's the only way into the kingdom. The only way into God's kingdom is the four steps that I mentioned for you. Acknowledge that you don't have it all together. Mourn over your sin. Admit it. Feel brokenness over it. And tell God you're sorry for your sins. Number three, come to the cross and receive the reality that Jesus loved you enough to carry your sin and die for you in your place. Receive the handout of God's grace and mercy. And number four, have a strong burning desire above all else to be made right with God. Put all your hope of that on Jesus and he'll save you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's, That's the message. That's the message of the cross. This is how we come into the kingdom. This is the way into the kingdom. Say into Now, what is the way of the kingdom? Once we've come into the kingdom, if we've been born again, if we've been made a child of God by faith in Jesus, if we're a citizen of the kingdom, if we pass the citizenship test in the kingdom of God, how do we live then? Well, the next four Beatitudes give you the answer. We'll cover them quickly. Number one, blessed are the merciful. Say the merciful. People who've really been changed by God's grace are merciful. They show mercy because they've been shown mercy. They are gentle with other people because they have received and been treated so gently by the Lord Jesus that their heart toward others has been changed. They're tender-hearted and willing to help people who are suffering. They're willing to forgive people because the people who hurt them because they realize how much God's mercy has shown them forgiveness. Because they've been made aware of their own sin, they're not judgmental when other people fail. They don't write people off as a lost cause. They can honestly pray at the end of each day, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We keep short accounts with others because we want God to keep short accounts with us. 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Number two, he says, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Say pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, the word purity is a beautiful word. One meaning of the word is transparent or clear. You can see through it. It's pure. It's, it's not contaminated. It's not cloudy or hazy. A pure heart is a heart that is open and honest with God. It's not hiding anything. It's transparent. It's, it's honest before the Lord. We're not trying to make excuses for our sin. We're just who we are in the presence of God. The good news of God's grace means I don't have to hide from him. The fact that God has already judged my sin and forgiven me as a sinner at Calvary means I don't have to pretend anymore. Isn't that good news? We don't have to pretend anymore. We can sit before the Lord and know that we are his children and his grace has saved us and he's working in us and he's going to continue to work in us and make us like his son. We can be honest and open before God. But it doesn't just mean honest and open. It also means singleness of heart, pure Pure means unmixed with anything. If something is pure, there's no alloy, there's no additive, there's no mixture. It just is one thing all the way through. Whenever we come to know the Lord, he will purify our hearts. This is what he does with his sanctifying grace. He cleanses us. He doesn't just forgive us and leave us like we were. He actually changes our hearts. He purifies us. He makes us pure. He makes us the same all the way through. Wow, God can do that for me? You better believe he can. And God's the only one who can. He's the only one who can clean us up. Many people never become a Christian because they think they have to clean themselves up in order to come to God. How much do you have to clean up to take a bath? Amen? We come to the Lord and he cleans us up. We come to Calvary and he forgives us and his spirit and his blood and his word begin the work of transforming and purifying our hearts singleness of heart, a desire to honor and please God more than anything else. Although their performance is still not perfect, their intention toward God is clean. They really want to serve the Lord. Is your heart transparent? Do you strive to live a clean life before God? Singleness of heart, honesty of heart before God? In other words, are you faithful? I think faithfulness is a good word for this. Say faithful. If you're married, you understand what faithful means. Faithfulness is not perfection. Faithfulness doesn't mean we bat a thousand. If you are faithfully married, you know that you still make a lot of mistakes. You know that you still don't do everything right. You know that there are a thousand things that you do that gets on your spouse's nerves. <laughs> some of them you know about. Some of them they probably haven't been honest enough to tell you about yet. Amen. Listen. Just because you aren't batting a thousand, just because there are still imperfections in your marriage doesn't mean you're not faithful to your marriage though, does it? What does faithfulness mean? Faithfulness does not mean I have a perfect performance. Faithfulness means I am committed to that one person. And there are lines I will not cross with anyone else. There is, a, there, there is a uniqueness to that relationship. There is something special about my marriage. There are lines I won't cross. Immediately we think about sexually. There are lines around our marriage and to be faithfully married means we don't cross those lines with anyone else. Faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness emotionally. We are faithful to one another. That's the word here. Are you faithful to God? I didn't say are you perfect, but are you loyal? Are you completely his? Mistakes and all, but are you his? Are you fully devoted to Jesus? That's the question. A pure in heart. Num number, 
number two, number three, and under this section, uh, they are not only transparent before God, not only are they uh, trying their best to live that kind of life, not only are they merciful because they've been shown mercy, they're peacemakers. Say peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. How do you spot God's children? They try to make peace. They try to make peace. Paul says, as much as is possible and as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. Now, it's not always possible and it doesn't all depend on you. Notice the two caveats there, okay? Some people won't let you. <laughs> Some people just want to fight all the time. They won't let you live at peace. Amen. But the Bible tells us as much as lies within us, we should try to be people who make peace. We're to be peacemakers. They strive to help people. Number one, we strive to help people make peace with God. The reason a lot of people are always fighting on this level is because they're not right on this level. The reason they're always having trouble relationally with others is they've never gotten their heart right with the Lord. And until you fix your vertical relationship with God, your horizontal relationships with God won't do well. That's just the reality. We don't really find ourselves able to love our neighbor as ourselves until we love the Lord with all of our heart. And we can't do that until we're convinced he loves us with all of his. Well, the cross proved that. He does love us. And Calvary is the proof. Are you going to love him back? And are you going to let him transform your heart into a loving heart? People who are peacemakers know that God has, has brought peace by the cross. Number one, they have peace with God. The Bible says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a war between us and God until we come to the cross. We're enemies of God until we come to the cross. Until we own our sin and realize that God already dealt with our sin. Rather than let the penalty of sin fall on us, he let it fall on himself at the cross. That's Calvary. And he allows us to make peace with him because of his gift of grace. Christians are people who know that and they try to make peace with others and they try to help other people make peace with God by inviting them to trust Jesus. They try to keep peace and unity in their church. They work hard to keep the bond of the Spirit in unity and peace in the church. They settle arguments quickly. They refuse to hold petty grudges with other people. They're willing to lay down their own rights and give up their own way for the sake of peace. Would your family consider you a peacemaker? I didn't ask you if you consider yourself one. Would your family consider you one? That's the real truth, right? <laughs> Do the people who live with you consider you to be a peacemaker? Are you one? Hmm, that's a good question. There's a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Some people are always in conflict. They're carriers for it. There's always a fight and they're always in it. They can walk into five conversations and they can hair lip everybody all five times. You ever met somebody like that? Conflict just follows them. That's not a peacemaker. But other people are peacekeepers. They won't confront about anything. They're afraid of conflict and they won't enter into conflict. Sometimes you can avoid conflict and, and have peace. Sometimes the only way to have peace is on the other side of conflict. Do you hear me? Sometimes the only way to have peace is to make peace and you have to actually engage in the conflict in order to settle the issue. Sometimes you've got to learn how to fight a good fight, fight a fair fight. But some things need addressing in our relationships, in our church, on our job, in our neighborhoods, in our country, in our own lives. Sometimes you've got to address things. Are you a peacemaker? 
A peacemaker doesn't dance around things. A peacemaker is willing to address the hard things, have the hard conversation, so you can move from the messy place you are now to a place called peace. If your life is in chaos, be a peacemaker. Move through the conflict and bring order, bring peace to it. But you may have to have the hard conversation. It's not always about avoiding conflict. Sometimes conflict can bring us to a righteous, God-honoring, relationship-preserving place of conclusion. So how are we doing? Are you passing the test? Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Are you behaving as a citizen of the kingdom if you have become one by faith in the blood of Jesus? There's one more on the list. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you notice the promise ends where it began? The Beatitudes begin with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's bookends. Do you see it? You start and you end with the promise. The people on this list, to them belong the kingdom of heaven. It's theirs. Are you on the list? Are you persecuted for righteousness' sake? The citizens of God's kingdom live and act so differently from most of the world that it makes them out of step with the culture around them. They're often misunderstood. They're misjudged. They're mistreated by people who don't know or love the Lord. They don't understand them because they live so differently. Paul says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If we never draw any criticism from others because we live for the Lord, we have to ask ourselves if we're really living for the Lord or if we're just living for ourselves. If my life doesn't look any different from the world, if the world never has anything to take issue with me about, then am I really living for Jesus? Because Jesus drew a lot, he drew a lot of criticism. His disciples drew a lot of criticism from the world around them. And if you and I are living in this world and no one is taking issue with us, we have to ask, are we really living for the Lord or not? Hmm. Lord, help us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Are our lives really that different from the culture around us? That's the question that Matthew asked us. Well, how did you do today? This is the citizenship test. Say amen or oh me. <laughs> This is it. This is the way into the kingdom, and this is the way of the kingdom once we come to be part of the family of God. This is how we live. Matthew challenges us to examine whether or not we're really part of God's family, whether we're really part of the kingdom of Christ or not. Like his original Jewish audience, they needed to be reminded of something. Heredity did not count for anything in the kingdom of God. The problem with the Jewish people was they thought they inherited their place in the kingdom. They were quite convinced because they were of Jewish ancestry, they were automatically part of the kingdom of God. They believed that. They were convinced of that. And when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he calls them out and says, it isn't so. They say, oh, we have Abraham for our father. And the Bible says that he looked at them and said, we could raise up sons and daughters to Abraham from the very rocks around us. God could do that if he wanted to. Being a son or daughter of Abraham doesn't make you a son or daughter of God. That's what the Jews needed to remember. Can I tell you today, there are a lot of people in the church that need to remember that as well. Just because your grandparents were charter members of the church, just because you've always been here, just because your teeth marks are on the back of a pew where you were raised, just because you remember the old building or attended there or were married there, it, none of those things make us part of the kingdom of God. 
The fact that we attend faithfully or or tithe loyally or, or serve in some department of the church. In and of itself, that doesn't make us part of the kingdom. We have to pass the test. We have to answer the question, have I been born again? Have I become part of God's family by faith in Christ? Has there been a change in my heart that only Jesus can bring? Has that happened to me? Is that the reality for me? You have to enter the kingdom for yourself. God has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. We can't ride in on the coattails of anyone else. Have you acknowledged your own poverty before God? Are you poor in spirit? Has there been a moment in your life when you came before the Lord and said, Lord, I acknowledge I'm spiritually and morally bankrupt before God. I don't have anything to bring and lay at your feet. Have you owned that? Number two, are you mourning over your sin? Not only do you admit that you've sinned, but are you sorry about it? Not sorry you got caught. Not sorry you reap consequences. Sorry for what you did. Have you realized that you haven't just broken God's law? You've broken the heart of the God who made you and loves you and sent his son to die in your place. You have spurned the heart of the one who loves you. It's not breaking the law. It's breaking love. It's, it's not sin against a rule. It's sin against somebody. You've sinned against God who made you and loves you. Is your heart broken over that? That's, the, that's a step into the kingdom. Have you humbled down and come to the cross and received the handout of God's grace and mercy? Are you willing to come to the Lord's table and sit with all the other broken people at the Lord's table? Are you? Are you there? Are you hungry and thirsty to be made right with God? More than anything in your life, do you want, do you desire, do you long for, thirst for, hunger for, do you really in your heart of hearts want a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Do you want it? Because the good news of the gospel is the promises. It's the promises. If you will own your spiritual poverty, the kingdom of heaven is already yours. If you will mourn over your sins, he will comfort you. What comforts me? The good news that those sins that I'm mourning over have already been forgiven at the cross. He will comfort me with the gospel. If I will be meek, I will inherit everything. I'll inherit the earth. All that God has to give me belongs to me if I will just humble myself down and receive it at the cross. Number four, if I will desire with all my heart to be made right with God, I will be filled. I will be satisfied. God will give me that relationship with himself. Are you there? Would you stand with me all over the Lord's house? As Chad comes and leads us in a moment of responding to the Lord, I want to ask you today, do you pass the test? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Are you a child of heaven? Have you cried out in desperation to God to take what he did on the cross and apply it to your heart? Have you done it? Have you forsaken your old life of sin? Are you trying with all your might, with all the help of God's grace, to live a new life of obedience to God? How do we enter the kingdom of God? Well, A, B, C. A is admit. Say admit. Admit that you're a sinner and you need God's gift of salvation. Acknowledge it. Own it. Come clean about it. Confess, grieve, mourn over your sins. Cry out to the Lord Jesus for his mercy to save you and rescue you. B is believe. Say believe. Believe Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. Believe that Jesus came and passed the test you could never pass. He died in your place. He took your sin on the cross. And that what he did by dying and rising again 
will set you right with God. Come publicly. Declare that Christ is your only hope and that you're claiming him as your own Lord and Savior today. When I say believe it, I don't just mean believe in your head that it's true. I mean trust in it. Put your weight down on it. Rely fully on him. Put all your hope of ever being made right with God on what Jesus did, not on something you can do, some behavior, some rule you can keep, or some great thing you're going to do one day for the kingdom of God. Don't count on your good deeds or being a nice guy or giving money or some foolishness like that. Put all your hope on Jesus. Believe on Jesus. And number three, the C is for commit. Say commit. Commit your life to Christ. Say, Lord, if you'll save me, I'll give you the rest of my life. Lord, if you'll forgive me and change my heart, I will live for you. Turn away from your sins and your old way of life. Sin is just selfishness. Turn away from your selfishness and give your heart to the Lord Jesus. Commit your life to following him as Lord and Master from this day forward by his grace. This is the gospel of the kingdom and Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And being a Christian is not just accepting Jesus. You don't just accept a king. Oh, I accept you as king. No, there's more to it than that. Whenever we acknowledge Jesus as king over our lives... We're saying, I don't just accept you. We're saying, I surrender to you. I submit my life to you. I will obey you. I will follow you. I will allow you to call the shots in my life. I'm going to let you be the boss instead of me. That's what it takes to be part of the kingdom of God. Are you a Christian? Have you trusted Christ? Have you acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you surrendered your life to him? You have to acknowledge his right to rule over you. Surrender, submit, live according to his way. Serve him loyally with your whole heart. Have you done that? If you haven't, what are you waiting for? Jesus stands ready to receive you into his kingdom today. He stands ready to invite you to come into his family. Will you come? Pastor, how do I do that? Admit your sin, believe on Jesus, and commit your life to him. And if you'll do that... It's not a matter of you receiving the king. Listen to me. If you'll do that, the king will receive you. It's not any big thing that you would accept Jesus because you and I are not big people. <laughs> it really doesn't matter what I accept, does it? When I stand before the Lord, it's only going to matter, did he receive me or not? The Bible says many people will stand before the Lord on the last day and the Lord will say, depart from me. I don't know you. It doesn't matter how loudly I say I know Jesus. The question is, does the Lord know you? Does he acknowledge you as his? Does he claim you as his own? I could go stand outside the White House this morning and I could shout across the lawn, hey, let me in. I know, I know President Donald Trump. They won't let me in. The only way they let me in is if President Trump came out and pointed and said, hey, Daniel, it's okay. I know him. Let him in. It's not about me knowing him. It's about him knowing me. It's not me acknowledging him. It's, will he acknowledge me? And the Bible says that the only ones that God will acknowledge on the last day are those who've received his son as their savior. Have you received Jesus? Have you received him as Lord, master? Have you been forgiven? Are you there? It's not about dotting your I's and crossing your T's. It's not about earning your keep. It's not about trying to impress God with some grand display. It's about owning your own poverty of spirit, mourning over your sin, 
It's about coming to the Lord's table and receiving the gift of grace along with all the rest of us. If there's anybody in this room who's right with God, they received it as a gift. And if God made any of us right with himself, he'll make you right with himself. It's a gift. Have you received the gift? Are you hungry for it? Do you thirst for it? Do you want it? Don't you want it? Guys, this is the gospel. This is the bottom line. And many people who say, Jesus never told, told us the way into the kingdom. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. And this is it. Are you a citizen of God's kingdom? Do you want to be? There's open enrollment today. The border is open. You can come across. He's inviting you to. Do, will you own him as your king? That's really the only question you've got to answer. Will you receive the resurrected son of God as the king of your life? If so, that's really all you got to answer today. We'll help you figure out the rest of it as we go along. Trust me, the rest of us are still figuring it out as we go along. <laughs> Just get in the kingdom today. Just come receive. Would you bow your head? Let's pray. Father, in the strong name of Jesus, I love you and I bless you. I thank you today for those under the sound of my voice. I pray today, Lord, for those in the room who may have never trusted Christ. They may have been in church. They may have never been. They may have no history with God or they may have a long history in the church. But either way, they don't pass the test today. They can't really acknowledge and say, I've given my heart to Jesus. I have received him as Lord and Master. He's my King. Lord, I pray today that today would be the day your spirit touches their heart and they respond and they receive you. Lord, not trusting in any good works of their own, only coming to the cross. In the words of the old hymn writer, in my hand, no price I bring, simply to your cross I cling. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, do that work for somebody here today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Before we go, the altar's open. If you need to trust Christ, if you need to be saved, if you need to come into the kingdom, I invite you to come.